0: Isaiah chapter 59. Almost right in the middle of the Bible, towards the end of Isaiah's prophecy. That's where we'll be this morning. And back at our Simeon Trust workshop in February, this was one of the passages in Isaiah that I was assigned to present to my small group. And since then, I've, I've hoped for the opportunity to develop that study into a sermon. And now that we've just made it past uh, the halfway point in First Timothy, this seemed like a fitting Sunday for us to turn our gaze toward Isaiah. And also, as Ryan has said many times throughout our study in Revelation, the Old Testament is our interpretive key to understand the book of Revelation. So this is certainly true of this final section of Isaiah, which contains visions of the Lord's plans coming to completion at the end of history. So I'm also trusting the Lord to use our time in Isaiah this morning as we turn back to Revelation next week as well. Now, I know that we're not supposed to have favorite books of the Bible, right? But Isaiah is definitely up there for me personally. If you read through this book, you'll be confronted with magnificent visions and promises of salvation from the Lord. Or as Isaiah prefers to address him, the Holy One of Israel. And because this God is perfectly holy, he cannot sit idly by while his people indulge themselves in their sin. And so the Holy One sends his prophet Isaiah to proclaim warnings of judgment and exile to his unrepentant people. But the Lord's terrifying warnings of judgment and exile are also accompanied by great promises of salvation and of the return of a faithful remnant from exile, those who would repent from their sin and would return to the Lord. Through Isaiah, the Lord promises to send a redeemer from the line of David, one who would be pierced for the sin of his people and one who would establish his kingdom of righteousness. And apart from repenting of their sin and turning to this redeemer, God's people are completely lost and without Hope. And that is exactly where we find Israel in our passage this morning. So if you're able, would you please stand with me as I read Isaiah 59 for us? Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways, the way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked, no one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal, as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. My sermon title this morning is Hope Where There Was None. And I mentioned a few moments ago that in this passage, it is Israel who is found hopeless in their sin. But I want us to see that this is not a problem that is unique to Israel. Without the Lord, this is true of every last person in this room. Even as we just heard in our scripture reading from Ephesians 2 to be without God is to be without hope. And so we can boil down this entire passage into this one truth. Our Redeemer is our only hope. Our Redeemer is our only hope. Just like Israel, He has always been our only hope, even when we were still lost in our sins. And so that's our first point this morning. We were lost in sin. This will take us through verses 1 through 8. In the first two verses, we find one of the most vivid pictures in all of Scripture of our lostness in sin. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So right from the start, Isaiah wants us to see the problem does not lie with the Lord, as if he was the one who lacked power to save. And this wasn't the first time that Israel heard of the power of God's hand through the mouth of his prophet. If you remember when the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, when they were rejecting the Lord and his word, the Lord asks Moses this question in Numbers 11. 23, is the Lord's hand shortened? Same phrase. Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And in Numbers 11, the Lord's hand did not lack power to judge Israel in their sin. And in Isaiah 59, we also see that the Lord's hand does not lack power to save Israel in their sin. So if we piece these two things together In the Old Testament, this image of the hand of the Lord represents his power to execute judgment and to provide salvation. So if it's not the Lord's power that is the problem, what is the problem? Well, it's the sin of his people. It is our sin that separated us from God and turned his face away from us. When God created the universe out of nothing, the very first thing that he did was separate light from darkness. And just like light and darkness cannot coexist together, our sin cannot coexist with the Holy One. It rightfully creates a separation between the Lord and his people. And also this image of the Lord turning his face away from us stands in stark contrast to the blessing that comes from the Lord turning his face toward us, his face shining with grace. And this is what sin does. It divides our fellowship with the Lord and deprives us of the blessing of his presence. And as if that wasn't enough, sin doesn't just divide and deprive us, it defiles us. Verse 3 paints the picture of a sinner's hands Covered with blood. The sinner is proven guilty before a holy God like a criminal with blood stained hands. And Isaiah shows us that sin defiles far more than just our hands. It defiles our mouths through lies and wicked speech. And so when we were lost in sin, we were dishonest lawbreakers. And to show the all-encompassing nature of the defilement of sin, Isaiah paints this picture of the process of childbirth, where mischief is giving birth to iniquity. In other words, Isaiah is saying that sin had a life cycle among God's people. Sin was reproducing, giving way to even more sin. And Isaiah powerfully illustrates this by de- depicting sinful Israel as a den of venomous sin. Snakes in verse 5. Now, what do we know about snakes from Scripture? What do snakes represent? Well, they represent Satan, the serpent, the one who led God's people into sin in the first place. So when Isaiah describes sinners as snakes, he is associating them with the snake, the serpent, the devil. And Jesus does the same thing in Matthew 23 when he rebukes the Pharisees. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This is why he can also say in John 8, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And while the sinful Israelites rejected the prophet Isaiah, the Pharisees did so on an infinitely greater scale rejecting God's true and final prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the same reality is true in both cases. Apart from heeding the warnings of God's prophet and turning to the Lord in repentance, there is no hope of escape for those who are lost in sin. In verse 6, we see that just like Adam in the garden, the Israelites' efforts to cover themselves are in vain. And apart from the Lord, we have all tried to cover ourselves and our sin, but it will never work. As Christians, we must be reminded of how lost we were in our sin before knowing the Lord. Isaiah's terrifying description of the all-consuming nature of sin was once true of our lives as believers. We were the ones in verses six through eight, whose hands were devoted to sin, whose feet delighted to run to sin, whose thoughts were drowning in sin. We were on the path to destruction. On this path to destruction, there was no hope to cling to. There was no peace to rest in. We were on a crooked, twisted path that was ever winding further into sin. And if you are not trusting in Christ this morning, this is the path that you are on right now. It leads only to death and destruction. Without the Lord, we are completely lost in sin and without hope. The truth is that everyone listening to God's word this morning needs a redeemer. And we all must look to him to deliver us. And this was the turning point for each one of us when the Lord mercifully opened our eyes to see just how lost we were and to see our need to be saved by him. So we were lost in sin. And next, we were longing for salvation. We were longing for salvation. Notice how the passage in verse 9 has shifted from Isaiah as the one who is individually speaking about Israel. Now Israel is corporately speaking. Where Isaiah said, they have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Now it is Israel saying, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. So God's people are beginning to grasp the state that they are in before the Lord. They're realizing that though it's violence and wickedness that are near to them, righteousness and justice are far away. And we see the word hope appear for the first time in this passage. And what are God's people hoping for? Light in the darkness. They're hoping for Isaiah's promise from chapter 9, verse 2, to come to pass. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of darkness, on them a light has shone. And wasn't this true of each one of us? Pleading for his light when all we could see was darkness. And as we see in verse 10, it gets worse. We weren't just blind in our sin. We were like Samson with our eyes gouged out completely powerless to save ourselves. And Moses' prophecy of Israel's judgment from Deuteronomy 28 has come to pass. It's almost the exact same language as we see here in Isaiah. Moses said, The Lord will strike you with blindness and madness and confusion of mind. Then he says, You shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and there shall be none to help you. And although this is describing Israel's coming exile from the land, we must remember that we too were in exile. We were in the exile of our sin with blind eyes and dead hearts. We were completely helpless apart from the Lord. Like Israel, we were those who were moaning like doves, as verse 11 says. Earlier in Isaiah 38, Hezekiah uses this same phrase when he's praying to the Lord for healing. Listen to what Hezekiah said. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. Beloved, though your eyes may grow weary from looking upward, keep fixing your gaze on your Redeemer. Keep fixing your gaze on him. We must remember that like sinful Israel, we were without hope and far from salvation. But the Lord, again, was merciful to open our eyes and brought us to humble confession before him. Now we must say that although we as believers are no longer hopelessly lost in sin like we once were, our struggle against sin continues to linger in this life. And like Israel, it was our initial realization through the Lord's mercy of this struggle that this first caused us to to long for, for salvation. And there still remains a longing within us for our final salvation when the Lord will return and our bodies will be completely set free from sin. But now we live in the middle of this tension and we do what Justin led us to do earlier this morning to confess our sins in the presence of a holy God. And we must remember that our confession of sin is not a one-and-done deal. Whenever we draw near to a holy God, we're confronted with our need to confess our sins before him. We should be like Romanian Christians who are they are mocked with the name repenters. That's what people call them. They mock them and say, those are repenters. Our lives should be so marked by ongoing repentance that the watching world would mock us for it. What would honor the Lord more than for our identity to be so tied to our need to bow before him in repentance? We must remember that we are repenters. And verses 12 through 13 provide us with six specific confessions about the nature of our sinful hearts. And I think this should inform the language that we use when we confess our sins before the Lord. First, we see Israel say our transgressions are multiplied before you. If we were to number our sins before the Lord, they would be impossible to count. Second, they say our sins testify against us. Our fingerprints are at the crime scene. We're guilty before the judge. Our sins testify against us. Third, our transgressions are with us. That is to say our sin lingers at our side just like the lord warned cain before he murdered his brother abel sin is crouching at the door and fourth israel says we know our iniquities just like israel we have heard god's word and because his word has spoken clearly about our sin and his holiness we know when our lives are marked by sin rather than holiness And fifth, we have denied the Lord. The Lord tells us that his ways are good, and we deny him when we say that our sin is better. And lastly, we have turned back from following our God. And this really is the core problem of our sin. While repentance is turning away from sin and turning toward the Lord, unrepentance is turning toward sin. And away from the Lord. And then we get to verses 14 and 15, and this is the final nail in the coffin for Israel. Though his people have confessed their sin, they still find themselves unable to save themselves. There is still no justice, no righteousness, no truth. And the evil of sin is depicted as a predator that hunts down God's people like prey. So just like Israel, we needed the Lord to intervene on our behalf. Just when we thought that all hope was lost, the Lord saw us in our longing to be saved. Beloved, though God is perfectly holy and cannot tolerate sin, he is also perfectly merciful to see us in our longing to be saved. So that brings us to our third point. The Lord looked upon us. The Lord looked upon us. So now in the second half of verse 15, the focus of our text now shifts from the people of Israel to the Holy One of Israel. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, once the prophet confessed his sin before the Lord, he cried out, My eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts and now in isaiah 59 once his people have corporately confessed their sin it's the king who sees them as one author said the great hope of the world is that god sees do you remember what happened at the beginning of exodus when israel was in slavery in egypt listen to exodus 2:24 through 25 And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Listen to this. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The rest of Exodus reveals to us that God didn't just see his people, but he delivered them with his mighty hand. So this is what Isaiah is saying to Israel. The Lord sees us. He sees us in our longing. For salvation, remember how he delivered us in the past. We can trust him to do it again in the future. Don't we need to hear that this morning? The Lord is faithful to deliver us in the exact way, in the exact time that he has planned. And in this passage, the Lord sets out to deliver his people from an enemy that's far more powerful and far more terrible than even Egypt. He sets out to deliver them from their own sin. And when the Lord looks, he sees that there is no one to intercede for his people. There is no one else but him who can save them from their sin. And to prove that his hand is not too short to save, as we saw back in verse 1, what does the Lord do? He stretches out his powerful arm and he brings salvation. And remember what we saw back in verse 9. The people of Israel said of themselves, righteousness does not overtake us. But now in verse 16, we see the Lord upheld by his own righteousness. Though God's people have no righteousness of their own, he brings his perfect righteousness to save them. And what happens next in verse 17 is fascinating. Look with me at verse 17. Isaiah says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. As one commentator points out, God is the ultimate divine warrior, and he's clothed in the armor of his perfect character. He's perfect in righteousness. He is perfect in his power to save. He is perfect in vengeance, and he is perfect in in his zeal. And when Isaiah saves zeal for last, he's expecting us to hear make no mistake, God will see this through. He will do this. And if you remember back to the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned that we often see God's promises of salvation and judgment mingling together in the same passage. Though it might seem counterintuitive, God's judgment is a necessary part. Of his salvation. One of my former seminary professors wrote an entire book on this called God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. And he traces this theme through the whole Bible. This book really helped me in my study of the Old Testament to see that God saves his people by carrying out his judgment against sin and against his enemies. And he does all this for the glory of his name alone. And that is exactly what we see in verses 18 through 19. While the Lord is certainly clothed in his mercy to save, he is also clothed in his wrath to judge. He will pour out his righteous wrath on his enemies, and he will repay according to their sins against him. And all of this is looking ahead to God's final judgment, as we've seen countless times through the book of Revelation. And on that day, as verse 19 tells us, as far as the east is from the west, the nations will fear the name and glory of the Lord. This terrifying imagery of the Lord as a rushing stream of judgment is, is hard for us to imagine. But here's how one commentator put it. He said, the wrath of God against sin will be like a stream thundering through a narrow canyon, pushed on by a rushing wind. And those who choose to ally themselves with sin, no matter where they are in the world, will have good cause to be terrified. In other words, Isaiah is strongly warning us, if you do not repent before the Lord, this terrifying judgment is coming for you. And there is no Escape, But there is a redeemer in Zion. Amen? He stands ready to redeem all who turn to him in repentance. And if you were an Israelite listening to Isaiah's voice, you were looking ahead to when the Lord would send this redeemer. And you probably would have imagined him to come like this divine warrior in Isaiah 59, ready to conquer But you wouldn't have expected him to come like the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as a sacrificial lamb led to the slaughter. But this was the Redeemer that we needed. It was our sin that needed conquering. And though in our passage the Lord sees no one to intercede, Isaiah 53, 12 tells us that this suffering servant bore the sin of many. And what did he do? He makes intercession for the transgressors. So he is the one who interceded for his people when they couldn't save themselves. And to an extent, the faithful people in Israel were beginning to understand this. Similar to our passage, in the middle of Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, the people corporately confess what the servant has done on their behalf. They say he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the Redeemer that Israel was longing for in Isaiah 59. But, beloved, we know the full story of this salvation. Unlike the nation of Israel, we stand on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb. We know that this Redeemer is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who suffered on the cross, who redeemed us from our sin and purchased Our salvation when we could not save ourselves. And you might have noticed that although Isaiah is prophesying about a future salvation, he will sometimes speak about it in the past tense as though it's already happened. A former pastor of mine used to say that for Isaiah, these future acts of the Lord were already as good as done. In other words, God's promises are so true that if he has promised that he will do something in the future, then like Isaiah, we can trust in his faithfulness as if he's already done it right now. And in our final verse, we see that his promises are faithful, not just for today, not just for tomorrow, but they're faithful forever. The Lord says, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Throughout the prophets, the Lord makes beautiful promises of this new covenant that he's going to make with his people. And in this new covenant, the Lord promises to pour out his spirit upon all Of his people. But if you read through the book of Isaiah, you'll find that the Spirit of the Lord rests only on this Redeemer who will come from the line of David. But the book of Isaiah comes to amazing fulfillment in the New Testament. In Acts 2, verse 33, we see this same Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, pouring out the Spirit on God's new covenant people. And the gift of the Holy Spirit changes everything for God's people. In Isaiah 59, we saw the Lord put on his armor to save his people. But as Paul says in Ephesians 6, it is now us as God's spirit-filled people who put on his armor in the battle against sin. And thanks be to God, his spirit will never depart from us. As our passage tells us, this is a promise from the Lord from this time forth and forever more. Brothers and sisters, our Redeemer has brought us the greatest hope imaginable to us who were lost in sin and longing for salvation. And because the Lord has looked upon us in his mercy, we wholeheartedly proclaim his praise from Isaiah 25, 9. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our hearts are overwhelmed with your mercy that you have have shown to us, Lord, that when we were lost in sin and longing to be saved by you, you looked upon us and you came in power, sending your son to die for our sins, to be raised to life, to give us forgiveness. Oh, Lord, may we never stop glorying in our Redeemer and all that he has done on our behalf. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.